0: Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Thomas Sines and I represent the plaintiff appellant in this case, Aldo De Leon. As you know, Mr. De Leon is a young immigrant to the United States who has received work authorization through being granted deferred action for childhood arrivals. About three years ago, he was pursuing his American dream by attending North Carolina State University and seeking a degree in chemical engineering. During his period of time as a student, He was recruited by the defendant ExxonMobil to apply for an internship, a limited-term internship of about three months in duration. He did that. Were were there requirements to be a part of that internship? What what was the internship for, what group of people? It it was for students uh, who were engineering students, I believe, Your Honor. Uh, It was a general application, though ultimately he was asked to file a separate application for a specific ExxonMobil location. But the important point is I believe there were locations throughout the country uh, for which the internship that he initially applied for could uh, be served.
1: Sir, let let me ask you this. Exxon hired him, and at the time they knew he was not an American citizen. Uh, And then they rescinded his employment when they found out that he only had a temporary uh, work authorization. How can you possibly uh, accuse the company of discriminating on the basis of citizenship?
0: Your Honor, this is the crux of the case, as you know. Uh, This is a circumstance where discrimination on a prohibited basis is being practiced against a subgroup of that entire protected class. It happens in other cases, has been recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court as recently as the Bostock decision. But the fact that you hire others within the protected class does not mean you are not potentially violating a a prohibition on discrimination against that class. In this case, it would be alienage at the basis for discrimination. And though ExxonMobil does hire some who are not U.S. citizens, we still contend and believe the briefing, the complaint, demonstrated sufficient to get by the motion to dismiss granted by the district court. That this was discrimination on the basis of non-citizenship, even though the company did hire other non-citizens. So In the counsel,
2: just to, to talk about the Bostot case or Bostot case, I hope I pronounce it right, but the um, yeah, you know, to follow up on Judge Floyd's question, yeah, you know, the basis of the decision there seems to be the connection between um, um, sexual orientation and transgender status on the one hand and sex on the other and it's pretty clear to me that in that opinion and the way the statute's written that's got to that can't be as a result of a kind of factual um, consequence like a dis- disparate impact situation it's got to be intentional there's got to be a tent element to it and the way um, the majority opinion is written you know, with several of the hypotheticals, it seems to focus on, for example, the uh, 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 an individual who has an affection towards men. And then to decide whether that's a discriminatory, you need more information. To, because if if it's a man, you need to, that information to determine whether there's actual discrimination or not. And there's a couple other examples that fall that way. Here, it doesn't seem like that's necessary. The knowledge about the work status is all you need to know to determine whether or not um, this Mr. DeLeon was within the classification. It may be true, and you're certainly right, that factually everyone who has that will be a non-citizen, but you don't need that to complete the picture. And that seems to be the way Bostock ties those two issues together is sexual orientation and sex. And I just don't see how we have that here other than in a disparate impact sort of sense. Can can you address that? Maybe I'm reading that wrong. But and, and I get there's parts of Bostock that are I mean, you know, I don't get how that every part of it matches up. But that seems to be the fundamental linkage of those two
0: Issues. Well, what Bostock tells us is that you have to look at the description of why the person was discriminated. The person was gay, lesbian, transgender. And then compare, using a but-for analysis as the court did in Bostock, to determine if a similar discrimination, if you will, would apply if the person were a different sex. Sex being the prohibited basis of discrimination. I would only respond to your question by saying, in this case, it is possible that ExxonMobil could come forward with evidence to suggest it does assess every person, citizen and non-citizen, for their ability to accept and complete long-term employment. That seems to be what what is behind the determination that you must provide, quote-unquote, permanent work authorization an interest in folks who can be employed long-term. That is an interest that would apply to both citizens and non-citizens alike. So as in Bostock, you've got to ask, yes, this is a non-citizen, and it was a result of not being a citizen, does not have permanent work authorization, would this company treat a citizen with a similar inability to commit permanently to long-term employment? a similar treatment
2: yeah I, and I get that point and maybe they would and there's some insinuation that that yeah you know, in the briefing that that may be the case but but even to, before you get there don't you have to connect um, citizenship more to work status um, along the lines that is done with um you know, sexual orientation and transgender status in Bostock. It just, those things, you know, um, seem to be factually connected here and not intentionally connected the way they are in the Bostock opinion.
0: Well, uh, I believe that understanding the law on work authorization would indicate that they are directly and permanently connected. That being that all citizens... Have permanent work authorization. It will not change.
2: Well, I don't all factually that's true. But I, I don't. That, I mean, both. You know, I don't want to you know beat a dead horse too much. But I mean, both. talks that, that. That's that's a lot like a disparate impact theory. That sounds to me like factually, everyone who has the work um, uh, temporary work status will be a non citizen. That that may be factually true. Probably. I mean, I think it is factually true. But that doesn't mean that necessary. I don't know that Bostock says that's what answers the question. There's got to be a connection of needing to know the citizenship in order to determine whether they are classifying on a prohibited basis. And I, I just don't know.
0: I, I, what you were characterizing as disparate impact, I would not characterize that way for two reasons. Okay. One, it's 100% under the law okay. that a citizen every citizen, has permanent work authorization. Now, that doesn't mean that there might not be other barriers to long-term employment for those citizens, right? Every non-citizen, by contrast, does not have permanent work authorization. Even a lawful permanent resident does not have permanent work authorization if they were to violate a condition of being a lawful permanent resident, including, for example, failing to re-register after 10 years and therefore being unable to carry proof that there are, in fact, a lawful permanent resident. So as a matter of law, it is 100% on both sides. Second I would assert it's really a tautology issue, right, a tautology issue. Are you defining the class that's being discriminated in a way that simply means being a non-citizen? And that's what we would argue here. You can't, in essence, assume the outcome by using different words to describe a non-citizen class. But that's what you're doing when you describe the class as those without permanent work authorization, because by itself, that means non-citizen. So it is simply a different way of saying we are discriminating against all non-citizens. Now in this case, they have exceptions. Those they call protected persons under IRCA, and that includes lawful permanent residents, asylees, and refugees. All three of those classes also have non-permanent, as I've explained, work authorization. So they do have... Well, it's not permanent, it just can be revoked, right? That, that's
3: not to say it's not permanent, right? I mean, you know, it, listen, it, it, you, a U.S. citizen, in a sense, doesn't have permanent work authorization either, right? Because they could go out and murder a bunch of people and be executed, right? And that would mean they couldn't work anymore, right? They could be put in prison, right? But, but those are still permanent work authorizations. They just are subject to revocation.
0: Uh, actually, Your Honor, it, 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 for lawful permanent residents, that comes close to being true. Though there is still a requirement every 10 years, if you are a lawful permanent resident, that you re-register? re-register. If you right. fail to do that, you can no longer comply with the rule that you have with you at all times, proof of your status as a lawful permanent resident, that then potentially leads to revocation, as you said, of work authorization. But with respect to asylees and refugees, there's a more frequent Requirement two years to go in and re-register, and if you also seek work authorization, my understanding is your work authorization as an Asylee would have a expir- an expiration date. It would then be reissued when you re-register after two years, as required, with a new expiration date.
1: But that's, so that's no, a sense of that's that's nothing that Exxon has anything to do with. That's correct, Your Honor. Why why in the world would they buy into a suit uh, uh, like this, knowing on the front end that he was a non-citizen?
0: Your Honor, again, this is a a question of whether they're discriminating on the basis of non-citizenship within a subclass of all non-citizens. It's the same as Connecticut versus Teal, it's the same as other cases decided by the Supreme Court. The fact that you, in the end, are hiring other folks from a protected class does not answer the question whether an individual, emphasize in Bostock that it is an individual question, that an individual is facing discrimination on the basis of a prohibited basis, such as alienage or non-citizenship here. So the fact that they do hire other non-citizens does not answer the question. Still under Section 1981, they are prohibited from discriminating against any individual, including Mr. DeLeon, on the basis of non-citizenship. In this case, because it was premised on his not having permanent work authorization, which is another way of defining and describing non-citizens as compared to citizens, They were, in essence, discriminating against him as an individual, as they also would against others who hold DACA. Can you you answer, so I I read Bostock as
3: as requiring two different things. One is a a but-for cause, um, and Bostock seems to expand that a fair bit, Um, and that was the issue that was at play there primarily. But the second issue, as Judge Quattlebaum referenced, is intentionality. Um, and that both of those things are required, right? And this is the difference between disparate impact and, 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 a, and um, intentional discrimination. Um, assume for a minute that I, I thought, or, or you know, hypothetically, that um, alienage here is a but-for cause. Help, just I'm just trying to really understand the argument for how Exxon is um, intentionally um, discriminating on account of alienage. Like, help, help me understand how you meet that part. I mean, you seem to be focusing on the, the but for cause side. Um, and I think there are arguments both ways there. But what I, I can't really quite get my head around is the intentionality side.
0: So, intentionality is shown by the fact that this is a categorical exclusion. There's no uh, application of different criteria looking into individual cases, it's a categorical exclusion. That exclusion is defined. As we've said, by whether you have permanent work authorization or not, that determination of permanent work authorization is entirely tied, 100% coincident with whether one is a citizen or a non-citizen. So, Bostock also tells us it doesn't. Right, so, really so, but then go back to
3: the to the pregnancy case, right, from the from the 1970s before we enact the statute, and the Supreme Court there says. Um, yes, 100% of pregnant people are women, but discrimination on pregnancy grounds um, is not on account of sex or on the basis of sex, right? In, in essence, saying it was a but-for cause of your discrimination, but it's not intentional because what the employer doing is discriminating not based on your gender, but instead on your status as being pregnant. Um, And it, you know, the the statute overrules that with respect to to pregnancy, but the principle remains.
0: If that had not been overruled by statute, I think Bostock would have severely undercut and does severely undercut that analysis. Because again, in Bostock, the Supreme Court tells us it doesn't matter what the employer characterizes its discrimination as, or how people in general would characterize discrimination. You've got to look at Is there a distinction that makes a difference between whether you're a non citizen or citizen, or in that case, so so your your argument is that either
3: you you agree that if we don't view the statute as overruling the principle, uh, instead, just an update of the statute, um, and that Bostock doesn't overrule it, that, that it would control here, and, and you got a problem on intentionality. No, no I, I do think Bostock would overrule it. That, that's what I'm saying. And if it doesn't, I'm saying hypothetically, if I think Bostock does not overrule a case that it doesn't cite or otherwise well, discuss, um, then h- help me understand how, um, if it applies, and we'll give you a few minutes to answer, but if if that case continues to apply, Help me understand why it's not your case exactly and, and rejecting it, given that it, I mean it's 100%, right? I mean, it's the same
0: basic idea. I, I think it's more than Bostock that undercuts the reasoning of that rather old case. Uh, except, and, and but so,
3: assuming sorry, that the like, case continues to control, can you distinguish it, or do you depend
0: solely on the idea that it's been implicitly overruled in some way? Yes, every case since then, the court has arrived at more general descriptions to apply it from one sex to the other. So instead of, in the subsequent case, are you capable of being pre- getting pregnant or not, it's are you fertile? So then that's applicable to men as well as women. That's Johnson Controls. So in this case, the same. Here, what is the general principle? Are you available without any barrier for long-term employment? That's applicable to both citizens and non-citizens. And the question in this case is, does Exxon apply that to both citizens and non-citizens? At this pleading stage, what we have put forward based on what we are aware of is that it does not apply to citizens as well. Now, we got past this stage and evidence came forward that, in fact, they do assess even citizens' ability to whether there are any barriers to long-term employment, you mentioned some of them, are they potentially indictable, thank, et cetera.
2: Thank you. Thank you, counsel. you got some time on the Oh, I'm sorry. Judge I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to go. In. I'm actually going to bring up a different topic, so I apologize no, to course. our colleagues. But, you know, the first step that, that is briefed is whether the implied calls of action under 1981 exist here. Um, and, and I've read the briefs, and I'm not going to go into this in, um, in, in detail. But is it, does the Bivens analysis, the analysis that we look to, in, to to see whether to apply a Bivens case, you know, is an extension? Are there special factors? Is that the same analysis? that we would apply here to determine whether there is a cause of action?
0: I don't think, so, Your Honor, but let me first say this was not fully briefed, and, and we would welcome further briefing if that's where the court chooses to go. But because I would say it's Comcast, different. Comcast, you
2: know, sites to the, uh, one of the, um, yes. the, to Bivens or one of the Kate. I can't, it may be a guy.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, but, but the reason I think it's not is, is that we have all of these cases up to Bostock that describe what does it mean to prohibit discrimination on a basis. We know this court decided in the 1990s that private discrimination on the basis of alienage is prohibited by Section 1981. What Bostock tells us is even though when Title VII was enacted in the 1960s, we may not have anticipated this. It was there. When you prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex That necessarily includes prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, essentially what the court said. So this is not an extension. This is, we decided. Let
2: me cut you off. I'm not debating right now whether whether it is or is not an extension. But that's the Bivens' questions, right? Number one, is an extension. Number two, are there special factors suggesting we shouldn't do it? my question is not whether your question is that's the analysis is that
0: the analysis we look to. Uh, I, I think it's debatable, Your Honor. I think well, that may be specific word, to Bibbins. That may be specific to Bivens, but I would not say there's any clear answer to whether that's the analysis that would be applied. You have an alternative suggestion for how we'd look at it. Again, my uh, assertion would be that even if you looked at those criteria, this is not an extension because it was embedded in the initial determination of private discrimination against the is
4: Okay. Mr. Lynn, we have to hear from you. Good morning, it may it please the court, Albert Lynn, on behalf of ExxonMobil. I think perhaps the clearest uh, illustration of why plaintiff's theory is wrong is that it would make per se unlawful, it would make it per se unlawful for employers to have a policy that explicitly refuses to hire individuals who need or have a visa that is something no one disputes is permissible including the department of justice Eh, is that really right because i
3: I, first of all even if it's even if that's true like like that's a consequence but if that's what the, the law requires that's what the law requires but do we think that if there was a law so, if if Congress passed a separate law that says to employ someone they must have a visa, um, that, that that would similarly fall into this boat. I, I wouldn't understand your colleague to suggest that that would apply here because that specific would govern.
4: No, no, Your Honor. I think I think it. I think if we take a step back and, and consider what their theory is, right? I mean, he said a couple times that it's it's this issue of a hundred percent impact. I mean, plaintiffs. His contention is that a policy is unlawfully discriminatory on its face, right, if by its terms, it differentiates on the basis of a trait unique to some non-citizens and only non-citizens. And so here the issue is temporary work authorization. That's the unique trait that applies only to some non-citizens. But I think visa, needing to have a visa is also such a trait. So I think that's why that that illustration is helpful here. And, And ultimately, Uh, Your Honors, I think the flaw in plaintiff's reasoning is that he's trying to prove facial discrimination through disparate effect alone. And your Honors have mentioned disparate effect a couple times today. And and I think that's really the problem here. In their reply, they make clear that their one and only claim in this case is that the policy is discriminatory against non-citizens on its face which, if true, would make the policy per se unlawful. But the mere fact that a policy has a certain effect on non-citizens, which is what he has emphasized here and in his briefs, doesn't make that policy discriminatory on its face. Right? Those are different questions. Whether something is facially discriminatory depends on what the policy says and whether it identifies as a protected basis, uh, you know, a trait, uh, identifies as the differentiating principle a trait that is protected—that is a different question. But
2: that so is yeah. But most talk, the the express basis for the discrimination was not sex; it was sexual orientation or gender identity, and so you know we got we got to deal with that. I mean, there was a you know uh, a, a description that was different. Than the you know on the basis of sex. Just like here, there's a description that's different than on the basis of alien alienage. So does Bostock take away the argument that look they didn't write
4: into the policy citizenship? So two answers, Your Honor, to your second question. No. I don't think it does. I think How
2: not? I mean I mean I mean the policy in Bostock was not expressly on the basis of sex they looked at the court looked at it and said you can't separate the two basically
4: yes your Honor and and, and that's my second answer which is for sort of what was going on in Bostock but I think just to make clear I don't think it's a, a fair or correct reading of Bostock to say that is that it has implicitly eliminated all of the cases that address how you deal with facially neutral policies. There are still such things as facially neutral policies and for that, There has to be more, right? One thing that you could allege is a disparate effect. But in 1981, there has to be intentional discrimination. So you also have to allege facts that, if true, would prove a discriminatory purpose. So that's my first answer. I don't think Bostock eliminates all of the cases, you know, over the years that deal with facially neutral policy. I think that is true. Those still exist. So.
2: But does it... I mean, I I think that's probably not a lot of disagreement on that generally, but does it eliminate it for um, policies that um, classify on a basis that is inescapably and intentionally connected to
4: a prohibited basis? I, I think I would... Use similar language to what you just said, Your Honor. Okay, yeah. I think the, I, I think the issue in Bostock, and and you asked my friend that question, is that the traits that were at issue there can't really be described or explained or analyzed without reference to the protected basis, right? And so there's that whole discussion in there about whether you would say, in kind of changing one factor to see if right. the outcome is you know changes, that you you have to describe it as being. Um, you know, Attracted to a person of the same sex, right. um, or no, I'm sorry. Attracted to a man, right? You have to sort of describe it that way. This is different, Your Honor. And you, you asked that. Can question you talk to friend. me just
3: a second about the, the the level of generality of the description, right? Because I, at least rhetorically, you could change Bostock by saying um, my category is not people who like men, which then requires knowing whether you're a man or a woman to know whether you're um, going to be affected by the policy, but instead the policy is homosexuality, right? And so if you describe it at at the high, like a slightly different level of generality, the question becomes, well, if I'm discriminating against anyone who's homosexual, it doesn't matter whether they're a man or a woman, um, I'm discriminating on the basis of the description. Um, And I I take Bostock to tell us we we can't be this broad, we got to go to the conduct or, or the more specific And I'm wondering how that applies here, because your colleague wants to suggest instead of the specific, that is like work authorization, it's more general. Like, do you have a long term interest in like continued employment with us? And is that the same move? Am I thinking about that the same way? The long term interest in employment is is the Bostock equivalent of calling someone homosexual um, as opposed to liking men is, is the equivalent of um, lacking work authorization?
4: I, I understand your question, Your Honor. I, I think the analysis of what was happening in Bostock is, is to be candid, I think a difficult one, and that was obviously the dispute between the, the, the majority and the dissent. Um, I, I think the way you understand Bostock is that, that again, I think it comes back to the idea that you can't describe that particular trait that was at issue without reference to the protected trait there, but I think more importantly, I don't think any of that is relevant here, and I think that's because if you look at the actual policy that's at issue that's pleaded, and that's at paragraph 27, it's not simply the statement, you have to have permanent or indefinite right to work in the United States, although that is the shorthand. It then goes on, and there's a parenthesis, IE, and explains specifically what we mean by that shorthand. And what we mean by that shorthand is, and it says, you are a protected individual under 8 U.S.C. 1324B. And that lists a a number of specific individuals. Citizens is one of them. Asylees is another. Refugees is another. Permanent residents is another. So my friend has talked a lot today about whether what's really behind the policy is uh, not wanting to hire people who have a practical long-term inability to work. I think that's wrong for two reasons. The first is we're not talking. We don't look at what's really behind the policy. In, in his reply, again, he's expressly disavowed the idea that he's challenging a facially neutral policy, right? And that you go into the McDonnell Douglas analysis and kind of figure out what, you know, whether there's a secret intent. He says at pages five and six, that's not what he's claiming. He's claiming that this is discriminatory on its face. So the first problem is you don't think about or look at or explore what the you know whether there's a pretext. But the second is, I think when you look at the policy as it's pleaded, right, where the motion to dismiss stage, so it's his words. The policy not doesn't only say permanent or indefinite right to work. It then defines that specifically as you are a protected individual under 8 USC 1324b. So your honor, to your boss' that question, I think that's a complicated one. I think it there was unique to the idea that to describe the trade at issue, you have to reference the protected basis. But I don't think that we come anywhere close to that complicating issue here.
1: Let me change course a minute. Uh, Does ERCA require immigrant uh, workers to exhaust their alienated discrimination claims through its administrative process, or is that streamlined process merely optional?
4: Your, uh, to be honest, I don't know, have an answer to that question. However, I, I don't think it would apply here to Mr. DeLeon because he's not a protected individual under 8 USC 1324B. So he's not, um, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not covered by that statute, which is really sort of the point
1: so he can, here. So he can pursue his claims under 1981 in, in a different manner.
4: Yeah. Yes, assuming for the setting aside our alternative argument that that Judge Qualdebaum raised about whether um, a, a DACA recipient or someone who's not lawfully admitted even has an implied right under Section 1981. But that is an alternative argument that we don't think you need to reach. I think you can assume for the sake of argument that he does have a, an implied private right of action, and you can simply find that the limited claim that he has brought here, which is the allegation that this policy explicitly discriminates on the basis of citizenship on its face, I think you can find that that is not true. The, the basis for the discrimination here is whether you are a protected individual under 8 USC 1324B. And so if you, you know, have kind of picture a decision tree, right, where there's a branch that goes one way and a branch that goes the other way. You know, and there's that node at the top. What is the differentiating factor that that puts you down one side versus the other? That differentiating factor is not citizenship. If it were, one side would have all citizens, and the other side would have all non-citizens. But what happens here is you have citizens as well as a whole bunch of other people, non-citizens, you know, re- refugees, asylees, uh, people with permanent residency. And on the I, other I, side, I, yes, I, you are.
2: I may, I, I, for sure, um, but, I mean, I think that's been kind of conceded factually from the get go that there there are plenty of non citizens the Exxon appears to hire, and the facts here that they hired th- this plaintiff, you know, suggest that. I don't see how that lets us not um, grapple with the issue that Judge Richardson raised, which is because. Bostock comes in and talks, you know, we got, and is a decision that says even if the policy has a, um, is based on something that's not the specific protected um, characteristic, you know, you have to, you can do, uh, it still can be um, prohibited um, if there's some connection between a you know, characteristic or a basis that is not, you know, explicitly the protected um, trait. So I, I don't see how, you know, your definition, which goes in the protected class, does anything to keep us from trying to figure out what we have to do with Bostock and whether to engage in that more specific analysis versus that more general analysis. If I'm if I've misunderstood that, I'd love to hear how. But it seems like Bostock, you know, If we were to, if we were to change the um, analogy and, and, and use you know sexual orientation and transgender, um, you still would have the same situation. I mean, it's not facially, it's not facially discriminatory except for the connection of that
4: with sex. Your Honor, I don't think we're really that far apart. I, I think uh, the Bostock methodology does apply. I think the question is is what Judge Richardson posed, which is how do you define these traits, right? right? That sounds and it's kind of a weird way
2: to end up resolving it by picking a specific trait versus the more general way you describe it. Right. On but, the other hand, that's how... Yeah, you know, the, the court there links sex and sexual orientation.
4: Yes, but, but I, think, I think the way that, you know, this court can resolve that in this particular case is, I mean, again, I think it, it, it's a couple things. I think the, the way you understand Bostock is you, you have this potential ambiguity disagreement, right, about how you, how you might define it, what level of generality, because it is a trait that is related to, intertwined with, right, can't be described or understood without reference to the protected trade. I just don't think that's true here. Uh, I think what you have, and and I think, frankly, I think IRCA illustrates that well. IRCA talks about certain non-citizens and then distinguishes amongst them, right, on the basis of their immigration status or their work status, and it says, you know the protected indiv- the protected non-citizens here are permanent residents refugees asylees and then there are some that are not protected which include people who need visas as well as uh, individuals like Mr. De Leon and I, I you don't I can't imagine a way where you would describe that or you have to describe that based on their non-citizenship it is a a separate trait uh, though it is one that is you know, only held by non-citizens, it is one that can be distinguished distinctly in a very easy way. And I think the facts here, and Judge Floyd referred to that, the facts here show that, right? We, when we, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I, just go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, when we, all we knew about Mr. Dalian was that he was a citizen of Mexico, he was offered the internship. It's when we found found out more as the application process went forward about his specific status and work authorization, and whether he fell under 8 U.S.C. 1324B, that distinct trait is how we, is why the, the internship was revoked. So I think Judge is Richard's, that, are we, yes, Are on. we
3: talking about in that context? I'm, then, Go ahead. Uh, when I think about Bostock, help me understand if what I've been thinking is right, and I want you to disagree if you, if you do. This is not a leading question. This is a... But I think Bostock is having these two pieces, right? One is but for cause and one is intentionality. And it seems easier here to talk about alienage as the but for cause of lacking work authorization, right? Given Bostock's broad language, that that seems to to be an easier fit than intentionality. Is that the right way to think about Bostock and is the right way to think about this case – um, is that even if it's you know technically a but for cause of lacking work authorization that being alienage, um, it's there's no intentionality uh, as as Bostock found it the sort of example that Judge Quattlebaum gave earlier about showing up with your spouse that is a man and unless you know whether the employee is a, a man or a woman you don't know so that requires intentionality is that the way of thinking about it or am I missing something in that analysis?
4: You know that's not how I read Bostock, but but I think we end up getting to this. Right, so help me understand how 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 you read it. Uh, so how I read Bostock is that you what was happening there was there were sort of two traits at issue. There's gender or sex, right, which is the the um, the actual protected trait, and then there's you know whether it's homosexuality or transgenderism is the other trait. And then the question is, if in step one you have to kind of figure out how you define that second trait, and then step two is you change only one of those traits, and you figure out whether that change would be outcome determinative. So but there,
2: that Bostock pretty much that 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 change one trait doesn't it says it, and then later seems to say. Well, but that's, it, it, it seems to say that and then almost reject it later in the opinion.
4: No, no you know, I don't think that's right. So there is a section where it is, is addressing, it says the, the other side argues. I, I think what it says is that it, it claims that the company is, accusing is too strong of a word, but the, the company is contending, right, that the analysis adop- ultimately adopted by Justice Gorsuch was actually changing two traits, And I think what Justice Gorsuch says is, no, 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 I'm only changing Changing one one trait. And the one trait that I'm changing is the sex of the individual. What I'm holding constant is, just to use homosexuality as the example, that the individual is attracted to men, right? So a man attracted to a man versus a woman attracted to a man, which, you know, is that outcome determinative versus if you held sex constant? a man attracted to a man versus a man attracted to a woman, right? And so he, he kind of changes those things and figures out whether that changes outcome determinative. If you do that here, the, the issue is, you know, you have a non-citizen, that's one trait, who is uh, not a protected individual under 1324B, or as we also put it, doesn't have a permanent or indefinite right to work. Then you have a citizen, who is not a protected individual under 1324B doesn't have a permanent or indefinite right to work. But you have to hold that constant. Does that change in citizenship result in differential treatment? And the answer to that is no. It doesn't.
3: And why does not it matter that, it's, that your comparators are null set? Right? I mean, the, the, the citizen that's not. 1324b doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Right. That's right. So, so why, why doesn't that change the analysis? I, I'm totally with you, but I, I just want to make sure I understand your, your position on the fact that it's a null set. Why, why is it that that doesn't matter?
4: I think there's two ways to look at that. One is sort of at a kind of a, uh, a theoretical or logical level, which is there is then no disparate treatment there's no other individual that is being treated differently. And in the cases that we cite, the Sex Plus cases, the Eighth Circuit and the Tenth Circuit and the Sixth Circuit have all said that. They've said, when you have that null set, you can't can't establish that logical requirement of discrimination or disparate treatment because there is no one who is being treated differently from you. I think if you think about it in the factual way here, that null set person is not being treated differently because that null set person can't be hired, doesn't exist. So it is practically the same treatment. So I think that's, there's sort of two ways to think about why that, that null set uh, issue is a problem.
2: Just just ho- hopefully this is short. Do, do you, back to the last question I asked your colleague, Do you is it Exxon's position that the way we address the existence of the calls of action is through the Bivens
4: lens. Uh, so my time has expired. If please, I may answer, please, um, your, your honor. When you were asking, I think the short answer is basically yes. You're, you had alluded to the fact that Comcast, which addresses 1981, refers to Ziegler, which is That's the it. Bivens case, and it talks about how you, you know, you shouldn't. We should be cautious about implied rights of action. So I think. The short answer is yes. I think more broadly the court has said on a number of instances that the days of the implied right of action are different from those today and that as a general principle there should be caution exercised in extending implied rights beyond what the Supreme Court has done. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We've got some time on
0: Rebuttal? Thank you. I first want to point out that no matter how you describe the discrimination here, either the ways proffered by Exxon, it is inextricably connected with alienage and immigration. First of all, the whole notion of work authorization did not exist prior to IRCA. Prior to IRCA, there was no such thing. It is entirely tied to alienage and immigration reform and control act. And the second description they use of protected persons comes directly from It is entirely a creature, once again, of immigration, therefore inextricably tied to alienage. So as far as the connection between the protected category, alienage, and what's going on here, it is inextricable. In the context of employment, there's really no way to figure out what Exxon's interest is in this issue, except by then going to the more general description, they're looking for folks who have the ability without barrier to commit to long-term employment. That is a description that applies both to citizens and non-citizens. And that's the appropriate way of approaching the question. If you end up with a null set, as was discussed recently, and the comparison you're making doesn't exist among those who don't have the characteristic protected, that means you probably have a tautology problem. You are in essence describing... We have that
3: issue come up all the time. We see... In, in traditional employment cases, all the time, somebody shows up and is attempting to prove discrimination, and they lack a comparator, and if you lack a comparator that was treated differently, right, that null set generally means you lose. Not 100% of the time, but it generally
0: means you lose. G- generally, Ron, I'd say when that occurs, you can come up with a more general description that could apply to the other, but the null set is not really null, but it's so small because it's such a small issue that it doesn't really rise to the level of being discrimination. That's not true here. Here, there's only a null set I'm because the description. I don't, I don't understand that. So, but If I could, the, the null set exists here solely because what's being used to describe the issue is entirely tied up with alienage. As I said, the whole notion of work authorization did not exist other than in the context of alienage. So their first description, do you have permanent work authorization, is meaningless outside of a connection to alienage. Their second description, are you a protected person, also tied directly to alienage. Both of those, the problem is they are in essence a description of the protected class. I think the analogy would be in Bostock if you said uh, the employer is discriminating not against women but against lesbians. And by the way, lesbians don't exist among men. Therefore, we can discriminate in that way. That is an analysis rejected in the Bostock case. You can't define it at a level that is in essence a description of the protected class. You've got to come up with as best you can, if you can, a description that cuts across both the protected class and those outside the protected class and ask are you treating folks in both classes The same with respect to that attribute. Here, the only descriptions offered are in essence tied to whether or not you are an alien, a non-citizen. I have to just comment with respect to the second: are you a protected person? The only connection to employment relates then to discrimination prohibited under ERCA. It's somewhat curious that they would at Axon describe it that way because in essence they seem to be implicitly saying we would like to discriminate against all non-citizens, but there's this law, ERCA, that says we cannot, so the only way you will be free from our categorical preference for citizens is if you are protected under the law from discrimination by ERCA." Problem with that is they didn't incorporate Section 1981, and ERCA and Section 1981 are different, though both prohibit discrimination against non-citizens. IRCA sets up for a select class subgroup of non-citizens, a streamlined process, not as arduous as going to court, filing a complaint, going through trial, etc. It's an administrative process. You go through an administrative agency that investigates, presents the case to an administrative law judge, and by very strict timelines, you end up with a resolution fairly quickly. That was established specifically because of concerns about what ERCA itself, through the the introduction of employment sanctions, might mean in terms of discrimination. It is not the full scope of who is protected within the non-citizen class from discrimination because of Section 1981. In essence, every way to describe it is in essence a description of the protected class itself, inextricably tied to alienation. Thank you. Thank you, council. As you all both well know, uh, we would love to come down and greet you and thank you for your argument. But
3: We certainly appreciate uh, you being with us and uh, hope that we get a chance to see you in person uh, before too long.